out of our silos in cardiology. We're now no longer just working in general practice and working in hospital systems. And I think the real shift is going to be in focusing in on maintaining well-being rather than treating disease. I'm delighted to be hosting this new UCD School of Medicine podcast series, MGA Clinical Influencers. No doubt lots of our listeners are familiar with the MGA or Medical Graduates Association. But for those of you who aren't, the MGA plays a vital role in keeping you, our School of Medicine graduates, in touch with their fellow alumni across Ireland and around the world. As a global and diverse School of Medicine, UCD naturally has been greatly enriched by attracting highly talented clinical academics who graduated from other Irish or international medical schools. They are now valued members of our UCD community, and you will hear from them too. The MGA is your organization, offering you a lifelong partnership with UCD School of Medicine. During this podcast series, where episodes will go out every two weeks, graduates will give us a trip down memory lane when describing their time at UCD, and on some occasions in other schools of medicine, and their experience as junior doctors. They will discuss their stellar careers in their chosen specialty, and the highlights and the challenges they encountered during their careers, and how they share their expertise and coach others. On a personal level, they will discuss how they manage a decent work-life balance where that's possible, and books for us to enjoy and holiday locations we should be thinking about. Our interviewees have compelling stories to tell that will spark your curiosity about life in the clinical specialty they have chosen. I am Professor Murish Fitzgerald, Emeritus Professor of Medicine and Therapeutics at UCD, I was Professor of Medicine and Consultant Physician at St. Vincent's University Hospital from 1977 to 2006 and Dean of the UCD School of Medicine from 2000 to 2006. Importantly, I'm also a proud UCD graduate from the class of 1964. With me today in the Clinical Influencers podcast series is cardiologist and pioneering heart failure specialist, Professor Ken MacDonald, who was a member of the UCD uh, School of Medicine class of 1981. You're very welcome, Ken. Thank you very much, Marish, and uh, thank you for reminding me that I'm that age. Yeah, well, there'll be more of that. Uh, <laughs> So just briefly on his curriculum vitae, Ken is Clinical Professor of Medicine at UCD School of Medicine. Uh, he's Consultant Cardiologist at St. Vincent's University Hospital, and he's the founder and director of the Heart Failure Unit at Vincent's, the first of its kind in Ireland. Uh, additionally, he's National Clinical Lead for Heart Failure in Ireland. He's Principal Investigator of the Chronic Cardiovascular Disease Management Group, and he is the lead investigator in numerous 
longitudinal studies on the diagnostic and therapeutic potential of biomarkers of cardiac inflammation, fibrosis, and remodeling. Ken did his early training in cardiology at St. Vincent's, and then later uh, for eight years at the University of Minnesota Medical School and its affiliated hospitals, where he reached the level of Associate Professor of Medicine. So, Ken, uh, you'll have an opportunity to get back on uh, some of uh, that pathway. Uh, but first, I'd like to start at the humble beginnings. Did you always want to do medicine or were you a late vocation or how did it come about? Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a great thing to look back on, Marish, because I now have two kids who are doing medicine and I've always uh, looked upon them as wanting to do medicine, but I've never understood was there a light bulb moment when they said they wanted to do medicine. When I look back, it was either, funny enough, I wanted to be an airline pilot or a doctor. I don't know if there's clearly no link. An airline pilot was ruled out because of eyesight issues. So I don't know was medicine a second issue at that stage, a second uh, choice. But I can't ever remember there being a challenge. My dad was an economist and he was, he wouldn't have been direct to me that way. My brother went that way, but uh, I think that would have been the fallback, not airline part uh, economist. So I think it was from that stage about fifth year, sixth year, when you begin to think about it a little bit more and you have to get your leaving cert direction, I suppose it's in around then. But no medicine in the family merged, so there wasn't anyone there that was a family mentor that was saying, you know, this might be a good path to go. You haven't taken out an amateur pilot's license? No, no, no. And I have, I have, I have a fear of heights. So, I mean, that was obviously not a good direction to go in, was it? <laughs> Wise choice, medicine. For the passengers, nothing else. <laughs> but uh, harking back then to some of your memories of, uh, you were graduated in the year of 81. And uh, back in those days, of course, uh, preclinical studies were in Earlsford Terrace and little activity in... Uh, Belfield. Uh, what are your memories of, of those preclinical years? Oh, it was such a great time because not only were you graduating from the, uh, the relatively cloistered and, and protected life of a school, of a student at school, where everything was provided for you at home or at school, and you were, you were spoon-fed to a certain degree. But then you were suddenly putting on long pants and having to go into a different form of education. Uh, and you were getting the opportunity to do what you wanted to do, which, again, was a great uh, honour and privilege. And then the point you just raised, I actually found when I look back on it, I, I think it was an interesting additional um, uh, plus of Earlsford Terrace is that you were, you were in a, you know, the capital city of the country. You're in a, a city where there was life going on outside of medical school. And, you know, when we took our breaks, you used to walk down to Stevens Green or walk around town. So you were seeing how the city itself worked, not just if you were up here, it would be just the campus you were seeing working. So I think there was probably a sense that you were missing a little bit of campus life. But on the other hand, I think it was compensated for by being right in the middle of normal city life as well. I think that was a, uh, an interesting uh, advantage of it. Provided some distractions as well. I remember a particular pool hall in Dublin, which uh, pulled me away from uh, academic pursuit every now and then, but uh, that was just the way of it, I suppose. <laughs> yes. you know? Yeah, the ruination of many a medical student. Yeah, yeah. Uh, just going on then to uh, teachers you might have encountered during the preclinical years, any anything stand out again when you start naming people it's, it's almost like by by not naming others you, you, you didn't feel that there was uh, impactful in your life but the person that i remember most because when i saw that question when james and i saw the questions so the person just almost word association the first 
preclinical uh, person that came to mind was Professor Coakley. Yes. And then I sort of asked myself, well, why, as opposed to Professor Mernon and all of these wonderful lot of people that taught you physiology and pharmacology, et cetera, et cetera. And I think it was because the, 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 pre, the first year, pre-med, was certainly not true medicine as most people would have seen it because you were just revising all of the basic sciences. And then you stepped into first med, and that was really where you got your first exposure to medicine. And the first thing that hit us was anatomy, and that was really diving into a potentially emotional, challenging area of, you know, dissection of corpses and things like that. And I do remember him being just a, a very wise guide to all of us, not only a wonderful professor of anatomy, but I, I remember in many ways certainly a in advert come as a father figure who understood that you're probably going to a very challenging area at 18 or 19. It's not, every, it's not something that every 18 or 19-year-old will do, nor do comfortably. So he, he does stick in my memory um, uh, as someone that was uh, a good guide at that stage, as well as it's been, a, you know, obviously an exceptional anatomy lecturer, you know. Yeah. Yeah. I'd agree with you because uh, I'm old enough to have seen him when he was uh, a junior lecturer and he was equally good then. Yeah. Uh, and then moving on to the teaching hospitals, uh, what, what are your recollections of that time? Well, Vincent's chosen, and again, why Vincent's not the matter? Uh, I think basically most of us make it on one geography and two where the close friends were going, and that's where uh, I was directed towards. I don't think it was for any other reason, but I regard it as just being one of those decisions I look back on and say, gosh, was not a great decision, because it wasn't actually one that I made, it was just one that... I think I was directed towards. So that's not in any way, uh, in any way, a criticism or a slight on the matter, which I think is obviously as good a, uh, a hospital in all its uh, in all its facets. But that period, when you go into medicine, and you will recall too. I mean, when we go into resier in medicine, we're probably no more than 20, 21 years of age, and you're going into this this amazing setup of a hospital, if you even leave aside the healthcare aspect of it, which of course is stupid to leave aside because it is the central uh, raison d'etre of the, whole, of the whole establishment, but this the, the the vast number of people, the different professions, the array of seniority, and this uh, this challenge of mixing with all of these individuals and, and trying to find your feet there. So I think at the one time it was intimidating, yet exhilarating, um, and it was trying to find your feet there. And I think when you look back, even though you, you probably will always remember the crusty person that never greeted you properly or, or pushed you aside because you were a medical student in the way. And <laughs> truth, the fact that you survived meant that the vast majority of people were welcoming. And that's the truth of it. I mean, I think everyone in that environment welcomed you into it as the new recruits in there. And that would be not just for junior medical students, it would also be for junior nurses and junior physios and junior, you know, right across the healthcare uh, delivery system. So... It was just a wonderful time. And I think you'd, you almost regarded it as your entertainment as well as your profession. Because people used to stay beyond. And again, you remember, it used to stay beyond six or seven, even just to hang around the hospital at the nighttime, uh, just to get the sense of where a hospital would go from relative calm to suddenly being buzzy and active because of some poor unfortunate coming with some problem or someone in the wards developing something. And now you try to hang around with the people that are doing something meaningful and not get in the way of people doing the meaningful thing, just to get a sense of what goes on. And you'd often stay there, even if, you know, you were never assigned call duties, but you might be there till midnight and then struggle home because it was such a, a joy and an interest to be part of it. So, I mean, I don't think it'll, I, I, I'll never lose those memories. They were just uh, fantastic. So that was the unstructured education of it all. And of course, it was always yeah. the, the structured education, which went on side by side. It was 
obviously as important, more important, you know. And so, so you were hooked from the beginning then. Yeah. I get the sense of that oh, from yeah. the way oh, you describe it. Yeah. I mean, it was just exhilarating, exhilarating, yeah. And uh, apart from all that academic pursuit of preclinical and in, uh, in the hospitals, uh, was there time for fun and uh, extracurricular activities? And how, how did you spend your time? Yeah, yeah there, there was. And... Um, I mean, my great passion at that stage um, uh, would have been sort of not a common passion in medical school. I was very involved in cricket, very involved in Marion Cricket Club. And actually, in my res year, going into uh, yeah, my res year, I was captain of the first team down there, which did pose a, a, a deep challenge to me, how much I would be able to devote to my medical education or how many lectures I could sort of skive off and do the cricket club things. I think psychiatry suffered, Mersh. I think yes. my, my psychiatry rotation, I distinctly remember, was June, July or July, August. And um, I don't think I gave that my best effort. Uh, yeah. But so that was the major. It was my major social outlet uh, at the time. And uh, so it meant for a busy time. It was great. Were you a batter or a bowler? I was a, a mediocre wicketkeeper and even worse batsman. But I mean, the, tr- the thing is, with those standards, you can excel in Irish cricket at that stage. Yes. Maybe not these days, but at that stage, you could, you could do quite well being terrible at both, yeah. you know. And then you're on to the big bang hurdle of uh, final medical exams. Any searing negative memories of that interrogation? I'll never forgive Joe McKenna for not giving me a 2-1, I think, in medicine. <laughs> I don't know if I've ever had a heart-to-heart conversation about it. But He's probably listening. No, I, it wasn't as intimidating. I think that's a, is a credit to all of you uh, that were involved with our education because I, I, I think even though maybe there wasn't formal continuous assessment, I think if there was that constancy of looking at people who might be struggling and that sense of, you know, let's take them out and just give them a little bit of tutelage that will bring them over. So, yes, the... The, the, I think when you get to that final med exam and the final med paper in medicine or surgery or whatever the uh, subspecialism was, you would be very anxious. But you probably knew that you'd been given a good grounding uh, and that people, by the fact that they're, they're going to be on your side to try and get you through once you're showing yourself to be relatively competent and safe. So I don't remember it as an extraordinarily intimidating time, uh, but nonetheless, yeah, a big challenge. Uh, absolutely. You know? And then uh, with your degree in your hand and probably a good family day out at graduation. Yeah, yeah. You were the first doctor in the family. First doctor in the family, yeah. yeah. And, uh, uh, you know, I, I, in the sense that as a dad now, I'm delighted to see one of my kids do something different to medicine and probably have a little bit more, not pride in that, but, uh, you know, gosh, he's gone off and done something different. There's a little bit of an extra yes. mark for that because it's sometimes yeah. easier to follow the line that's been drawn. Uh, so in the sense that I had done something different, I think dad was... And mum were sort of uh, pleased to see that and proud to see it. So it was a great day, great day. And then after that great day comes a, a kind of a chill as you contemplate uh, uh, the rigours of internship and then your further training. Uh, where did you work uh, for your internship and further training? It was all within the first three years of NCHD. We're all in the Vincent's access. They were, and the great thing about Vincent's at the time I don't know if it's as much the case now, is that you were given most of the rotations, apart from the professorial ones, with yourself and Nilo, it would, it would have been with a good component of, of uh, experience down the, in the peripheral hospitals, which I think was a great uh, training ground for junior docs. So I interned in medicine with uh, Jim Fennelly and Dennis Keating and then went off and did six months 
surgery with uh, Mr. Maloney and Monaghan. And if I ever took, if I ever was going to take a left turn and do surgery, it would have been because of that experience, because he was just the most wonderful doctor, whatever about his surgical skills, which of course were exemplary. And uh, he was just a wonderful guy in terms of just giving people experience. Then uh, I had two SHO years, one uh, Vincent's uh, Nina and one Vincent's Cavan. Yeah. Uh, and uh, you just get a great opportunity. You get the more structured, formal training um, in the Vincent setup, but probably less responsibility. Yes. Uh, and then you go down to work with people like Brian Lamas and Nina, and uh, you couldn't get a better tutor, mentor in medicine. Yeah, they were all superb general physicians um, in that particular era. Alas, gone now. Well, it is. And I think, you know, I, I was talking to my better half's also doctor last night, and she was saying one of the things that is gone, gone, I completely agree with her, is the likes of the, the Brian Lamas and the Phil Brennan in, in Vincent's and that type of um, wise, uh, broadly trained well, exceptionally well studied and everything. You know. And then uh, you're moving on and so uh, you've done your basic training. Uh, I mean, what nudge uh, occurred to make you think of cardiology? Well, I, I remember coming into the, you know, the time of year we had to start applying. So it was like the February of my second year in SHO and I had my membership and I just didn't know what I really wanted to do in medicine. I knew I wanted to do medicine, but I didn't know what specialty. And so I said, let's take a year of general medicine just, just to get a bit more experience and also give myself some time to think. So I went off into the year of Michael Buckley up in, um, in James's, uh, which was a great year in hindsight, uh, in the sense of a lot of general medical call experience and gave you some time. It's also a well-established cardiovascular unit. And we worked side by side, by side with cardiology in the hospital uh, system up in James's. So I got an experience of working, even though I wasn't associated with the cardiology team, I sort of infiltrated in there just to get a sense for it and got bitten by the bug and then went back and spoke to uh, our cardiology colleagues in Vincent's. Because again, the draw was always to pull me back to Vincent's. I always wanted to go back to Vincent's. So I talked to um, uh, Brian and uh, Richard uh, about cardiology. Uh, Brian Moore and Richard McKay, and neither of them would have known me from Adam because I never would have done anything with them in terms of, I don't think I ever rotated with them as students and certainly not as an intern. Um, but I went back and talked to them. And uh, uh, Brian, as you will know, because you're a, a good friend of his, uh, God rest him, but he would have been um, my mentor in cardiology as I came up to the system. But I remember his, uh, his first words when I went back to talk to him. He said, yes, you clearly should do cardiology. Please apply for the Vincent's job next year, but you won't get it, let me tell you. But we will give it to you the following year. So you won't get it next year, but you should go in anyway and just uh, have the experience of applying for it. Uh, but he made the fatal error of going off golfing that day yes. at, the, at the interview. And the people that were there decided not to take his... Uh, instruction to appoint someone else and they appointed me which I don't think set Brian and myself off on the right foot initially but we got over that Yes he might have gone into a towering rage then (laughs) but anyway moving along then uh, you spent quite a period of time in the University of Minnesota Uh, uh, how did you, I won't say end up there but uh, it was a noted centre how did you get to Minnesota? Yeah, because it wouldn't have been one of the centres that would have been necessarily known in Ireland for postgraduate experience in the States. Uh, in sense, most of those centres are along the East Coast uh, or in Chicago or on the West Coast. And again, it was actually, in terms of uh, a structured decision, this was probably one of the most structured decisions I made in the sense we, 
we looked around for for places that had a keen interest in heart failure because Brian could even see at that stage as Brian Moore said you, you you do seem to have an interest in there so let's try and get you some solid experience and and that was the premier or the top two heart failure in, in terms of heart failure units in North America at the stage there was um, uh, the lead person was um, extraordinarily well known in heart failure Prof Jay Cohen and um, um, so I had the opportunity to go there and also my, my this is I suppose one of the challenges of having two docs in the family my my uh, good lady wife Helen wanted to go off and do hematology and that also happened to be a an extraordinarily well-known bone marrow transplant unit so it sort of suited us both um maybe the weather didn't suit us but the the um, environment yeah. suited us yeah. you didn't take up ice hockey now that you'd no, didn't take put up this, ice hockey. No, the, the cricket no. bat aside no, no, no. and then what homing instinct occurred yeah. and my plan was just to round off some specialist skills to make myself uh, employable back in ireland and again, at that stage, as, as you recall, as a cardiologist, you had to have a broad range of skills, as would have been any specialist. You couldn't just come back as, as a sub-sub-specialist in one area of your discipline. So I, I managed to get myself some training in heart failure and some training in, in, um, in interventional cardiology in their interventional cardiology program. And then went on staff there as an assistant and then graduated up into a, a sorry, associate up to assistant professor. And at that stage, I think both myself and Helen thought we were going to be there for the duration. We had uh, a couple of kids at that stage and everything was going. It was a great place to live and work, uh, very structured. And then Helen went for a job and got the job in, in Tala. And uh, so the pressure was on me then at that stage. But I'd always, I'd always been keeping contact with with uh, Brian Moore and he was always looking oh, I mean that's what I said he was a tremendous mentor for me he was always keeping me abreast of what the opportunity was um, so I was extraordinarily fortunate that a position was coming available in Vincent's and uh, went for it and got it Well there, there must have been a, a, tr- a transition phase for you mm-hmm. uh, for the family in fact all yeah. moving back mm-hmm. um, in cardiology then uh, what were the difficulties in transition coming from a highly structured, yeah. uh, multi-colleague program to uh, a relatively lowly populated crew of cardiologists in Vincent's? You have to have your eyes open to that change when you come back, I think, because I think when you're over in the States, you really, at least at that stage, now it's the same, I think, in many of the European centres now, uh, may not have been at that time, but uh, certainly in the States, you were working in extraordinarily well-structured, extraordinarily well-resourced. And even for issues such as work-life balance, they were very protective of ensuring that staff didn't get burnout. And I remember a couple of occasions, I remember doing an angioplasty as a junior staff cardiology in Minnesota, and... Uh, it, it, it the the clock had hit six o'clock, uh, and I was still doing the procedure. And the on-call cardiologist pops his head into the cath lab and said, "You can go whenever you want. This is dragging on, or blah, you know, whatever. Just if you need to leave." And that idea of changing over wouldn't be something you'd want to do for patient care. But the fact, and of course, it, it wouldn't be what you would do. You would just continue. But the fact that the offer was there all the time to move you on out, so you would be aware of the fact that. Coming back to Ireland, Dublin, Vincent's, you would not have that luxury because you were coming back into a totally under-resourced service where you'd be doing volume-wise almost what four times the number would have been doing in the States. Um, but the, the draw of coming home, the draw of working and having family grow up in Ireland, which is, I think is a major uh, attraction, uh, but also going back to your alma mater, I mean, that's, that was a huge attraction to me, just coming back to work with Vincent's and Brian and Richard. 
And uh, then there must have been some difficulties in the first few years then in that acclimatisation. I mean, what, what were the things you tried to do that were difficult to do? I think when I was fortunate enough that, and I always think when you're coming back into that system in Ireland, it's good that you've been at consultant level abroad before coming back and you're not simply going from registrar and consultant in your first experience of consultant responsibility is in the system, at least back in the 80s and 90s, as busy as the, as the Irish system was. So I had, to, I had the good fortune of being at consultant level for about five or six years in, in the States. So I was comfortable at that stage with having to make decisions. I was, But one of the great systems in the US, which wasn't quite as well established in the Irish system, but thankfully now has become well established, is this idea that you're not on your own in the States that there was this multiple fora for discussing cases uh, and multiple oversight on what's going on in terms of outcome from procedures, outcome from diagnosis. So you'd see at a regular interval how the team were performing, if you want to put it that way, as a department, and even how individuals were performing. And it wasn't to show up somebody, it was simply to say, well, you know, if the things aren't going quite right, uh, what can we do to help you're coming back here initially, you felt, at least my, my sense was, even though Brian was a wonderful colleague and Richard was a wonderful colleague and the rest of my medical colleagues were wonderful colleagues, you were a little bit, as a, you were functioning as an isolated practitioner. You didn't have as many of those resources to turn into. Now, as I say, they've really developed. Uh, and that's one of the things I try to impart to juniors coming through is that you really need to always be questioning, do you need a second opinion? Do you need to talk to somebody? Just bat something off somebody because... That's not a sign of, of weakness. I think it's just to, it's reassuring for yourself. It's also, I think, the best way of practicing. Not that you run everything by people, but no, it's just the, the complex things, which we all come across day to day, I think. You know. And then that's portrait of the artist as a young cardiologist. Uh, moving along then, and we're now four decades, believe it or not, since you graduated, you've obviously done an awful lot during that time. And we've touched on a lot of it in your curriculum vitae. Looking back, what are the things you, you, you feel proud that you've done or proudest of what you've done? First off, to mention, I think I've been extraordinarily fortunate um, in coming back to Vincent's because that's where my footprint was and that's where my senior mentor was who knew what I wanted to do. And even though we thought, just talked about the, uh, the busyness of the hospital, I think Brian always uh, had his eye that, yes, he, this chap wants to develop something in, in heart failure and develop that unit. So I, I think I had that behind me all the time, which was extraordinarily fortunate for me. When I look back, the, thing, the, 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 the general achievement that I'm most proud of, and I, I take only part credit because there are lots of people here with me that have done it is the, is the initiation of the, the heart failure service, which was a clinical academic structure. It wasn't just a clinical structure. And I really wanted to bring that clinical academic capacity, which you had in the States to try and bring it back into cardiology. Cause it clearly was there in, in your specialist immersion, several others in Ireland, but it, it really wasn't there in cardiology to any great extent, and certainly heart failure was just an open area because there was no one in that area. So I wanted to try and, and do that. And even though I knew it was going to be a challenge, uh, I think it has been achieved. I think we've now got an established clinical and academic unit, which um, I only hope now as I step aside that we can get someone that is going to continue it because it's, um, I think, a, a good clinical service, but also a very interesting uh, academic environment for people to work in. And lots of your colleagues would attest to 
th- that particular achievement. Um, th- they're, they're high points, obviously, but with the high comes the low from time to time. And have there been any instances where, you know, you felt your knowledge, your skills, your personal resilience was challenged by uh, difficult obstacles? Even though I just talked about an achievement, I, I think where my curriculum leader, my personality has been a little bit lacking is in, and you might think this is uh, as strange as it is, sort of in, in, in good leadership skills. Uh, I, I tend to be, uh, when I come up against something, I tend to be probably a little bit more confrontational than I should be and a little bit saying, well, let's, let's try and bring people along. And I, I think the, even though we've, we've had achievements in heart failure, I think they could have been even more rounded in certain areas if um, I had gone and done uh, in the same way that colleagues now go off and do MBAs in business management or healthcare economics or whatever, if I got some sort of structured advice on how you would actually lead something, because I think there's a skill set in that, that if you're, if you're not naturally born with it, I think you can get some good pointers in it. So that would be in, in terms of the academic development. I, I think always you'll come up against different difficult cases. And I think sometimes when you, you have difficult cases, you have to watch where you do not want to, again, just making the point I've made already, you do not want to make that sense of seeking second opinion to be any sense that you're showing yourself as weak. And I think that's something that we need to say to us all, no matter what area of medicine, whether you're a doc, a nurse, a physio or whatever, you need to be able to say, okay, let's just stand back and take another opinion. This isn't going as well or I'm not certain. If that little man in your head is telling you that this isn't going as well as you'd like it to go, then I think you need to uh, just grab a colleague and say, let's have a look at this. And uh, I think uh, just about every doctor on the planet would say there was time they should have done that and they didn't do that. And do you try and transmit that that wisdom to uh, your trainees and your juniors Oh, I think so, yeah. And I think sometimes, I think one of the, the, the aspects of medicine in Ireland that I don't like at the moment is that it can be transmitted as a need to second, take a second opinion to cover off any medical legal issue. Yes. And I think that's a sad reflection on the whole thing if it's only covering off medical legal. I think what you should be doing it for, obviously, is, is patient safety, patient uh, security and learning. Because yeah. I think it's by, by voicing these uh, difficult issues that we can all... Um, uh, learn even at the at, at the senior end, but certainly at the junior and middle rank. Uh, and, uh, you know, you you benefit from seeing uncertainty with your senior colleagues because you know then it's a natural thing, uh, and I think that's really important. Uh, but then just the specifics of the case, you learn from it. As well. Have you mentored former trainees who have gone on to be successful cardiologists? And one of the benefits that we've had by developing the. Uh, the clinical academic unit in heart failure and chronic disease um, is that we've had some really outstanding graduates of um, of uh, many colleges, mainly UCD Medical School, come through and work with us and do postgrad degrees, uh, MDs, PhDs. And, you know, in, in the sense of mentoring them on their particular project, yes, but also because that's a two, three-year project and you tend to work closely with them over the time, you do get a chance to direct them in the greater, you know, course of life in medicine and uh, where they're going. So that's, I think, a great, um, uh, it's uh, it's a great honor to be able to do that. Uh, just it's uh, And it's also good fun, I think, if you're working yeah. with someone of like mind, you know. And it's continuing the honorable tradition of the original mentor who was 
friend of Odysseus or Ulysses yes, yes. Uh, and mentored his son yes. Telemachus. It's really so important in medicine. Now, you've come through uh, these uh, decades and you've seen lots of changes. Just uh, looking into the crystal ball for the next 10 to 15 years, it used to be 40 to 50, but pace of change is so fast. What do you see happening in cardiology? If you were to pick one thing that uh, you'd predict would be a big change. I think the thing that uh, enthralls me most about the change at the moment is how we're, we're getting out of our silos in, in, in cardiology. I think it's happening in, across medicine, but I'm seeing it obviously in, in cardiology where we're now no longer just working in, in general practice and working in hospital systems. And the other uh, arena of care obviously is the home and um, we're now trying to bring these three into a combined approach to care. And I think what's happening now with the uh, chronic disease structures within the HSC, I think is an extraordinarily exciting development. Um, now, to try and convince people that chronic disease structures of care is exciting can be a bit of a challenge because I think by nature, we're all excited by the new technique, the new procedure, especially in cardiology. That's a bit of our Achilles heel is that we like all the gizmos, uh, we like all the interventions, um, but the fundamental of cardiovascular care has sometimes been left behind. I think that's where I see the exciting new changes that we bring chronic disease uh, into the forefront. We knock down the silos. We're linking very closely with general practitioners, with other allied healthcare professionals. We're delivering more care in the community. And we're intervening earlier in the sense of trying to prevent. And certainly when people get symptoms, try to diagnose earlier and keep people well in the community. Now, that all sounds like um, world peace and apple pie, but I do think it's entirely possible. And I must say, having been involved with the National Heart Programme now for a couple of years, I'm enthusiastic about the amount of money and resource that's going into it. Now, whether it's going to, whether we're going to see bang for the buck, as the phrase goes, only time will tell. But that's where I see a major shift in cardiology. It's not to leave beside, leave behind the exciting, cut, uh, cutting edge interventional side, imaging side, these these areas need to be fostered and developed and we need to be kept, uh, we need to keep ourselves up to date with those. Uh, but I think the real shift is going to be in focusing in on maintaining well-being rather than treating disease. And that's a vision that I think a lot of people would share and it's devoutly to be wished uh, in the future. We're just going to change pace now. We're coming up towards uh, the final straight. We're, we're going off piece now. We're going to Talk about literature and... Oh, dear. I might disappoint you here now. (laughs) So, I mean, all of human life is in medicine. And similarly, the mirror in literature to human life is is very profound as well. I mean, are there any books that had a big impression on you or that you'd highly recommend to people? Well, I I think probably, uh, and again, this is the third time I'm quoting her here tonight, which is a bit worrying my wife, uh, but she would probably say that's, you know, she would say that you really need to spend more time reading. I think I have two areas that I like to concentrate when I'm not doing medical stuff. One is in terms of reading. uh, One is of a great passion for Irish history um, and especially modern Irish history. And gosh, if, if, if there was a, a topic du jour at the moment it's just it's a wonderful time just to see it all and uh, being relived so I, i'm fascinated by that um and then the other which is completely different is that if i was to pick an author that i'd pick up and just read it's uh, mitch bloom and i don't know where he figures on on uh, in your guy in, in anyone listening but he's 
He's this wonderful American author that writes, he writes the type of book I can read because one is a short Mersh. Yes. Okay. These are 150 page books, uh, but they're, they, they're, they're beautiful stories. And behind the story, there's a message to us all, I think. Now, a lot of them are, are quasi-spiritual um, uh, in terms of just trying to get people to think a little bit about the, the course of life and the things that go on in life and what might be happening after life. So um, I just find them easy to read and, and they make you think a little bit. And it's not a, a tone that you can get lost in, but uh, uh, I think it does, does what it needs to do for me anyway. So you heard that here first, medical graduates uh, of UCD Medical School Mitch is your man. Mitch is your man, yeah. Do you have any do you have any favorite bolt holes or hideaways that you might or might not like to share with us for downtime and holidays? Absolutely. I think the thing that we've um, um, come to find in the last 10 years was biking holidays in France. Now, it's not a unique observation because uh, as evidenced by our experience, lots of people do it. But it's just a fantastic way of getting real downtime in a beautiful country. But I mean, we all know the the, the, the strengths of France. Um, but uh, they have just got the most beautiful set of um, bike paths along their canals and rivers, and they have this uh, wonderful setup where they uh, bring your gear from A to B, and all you have to do is direct yourself along the Gironde or whatever the Loire and find yourself in in the next place. Uh, and it's just a fantastic way to relax um, and get away from it all and have a holiday that could be full of culture because you could be visiting all the, the chateau or, the, or it could be just relaxation. Um, and it's also a little bit of exercise. Now, this is not Tour de France uh, biking merge. This is on the flat, uh, but it's, uh, it's just a wonderfully relaxing way of spending some time. Uh, so that's our we've been doing that unfortunately COVID got in the way of it now for the last uh, couple of years but we're back on next May um, so it's a, it's a great it's a great way of uh, spending some time outside of that anywhere around this country I think we're just so fortunate to live in this little island because there's so many places you can get away Absolutely. to and uh, you, you know you just sometimes don't appreciate it I think where you live and if cycling in France intimidates you there's uh, one company that's called Cycling for Softies so uh, you can book your holiday to cycle in France uh, with that as well. Final couple of questions. Uh, I mean, who or what inspires you? Uh, doesn't have to be a hero or a heroine or a thing. Tell you what inspires me, and it's very recent. And, uh, you know, in a, in, a, in a system that often is uh, criticised for being self-centred and um, uh, fractured, uh, and everyone after their own, I'm talking about the healthcare system, uh, I was just truly inspired by the reaction of the healthcare system to COVID. Uh, I was just blown over by it. And I can say it without patting myself on the back because I was nowhere near the front line. The front line was uh, in the hospital system and general practitioners and their staff in the community. The front line in the hospital, as you well know, Marish, were the, the nurses, uh, the, uh, our ICU colleagues, our ER colleagues, our junior hospital doctors. I think our junior hospital doctors uh, took a battering uh, over the last two years in terms of the intensity and the concern and the worries, not only of the work, but what they might be bringing home. And I was extraordinarily inspired by seeing how they just, how everyone got on with it. Um, 
And I think that could be one of the um, silver linings to a horrible, horrible couple of years that people might just get back a little bit of the esprit de corps of everything and say, well, listen, you know, functioning together, we can achieve quite a bit. I hope we don't lose that because I think that's certainly been one of the messages. That's inspire a source of inspiration for sure. And then any final pithy quote that you like to lay on your trainees or repeatedly on your family uh, that you think encapsulates a lot of wisdom? This isn't going to shatter anyone's, uh, it's not going to go back to the depths of philosophy, but uh, it just reveals uh, me to be a Manchester United supporter. Yes. And uh, so this is going to be a Roy Keane quote. <laughs> and you probably know it. It's just uh, when you fail to prepare, prepare to fail. And I don't know whether he actually coined that phrase himself. Um, and again, for someone to say that you're using a Roy Keane quote as inspiration is a... Uh, but uh, you know what? I think it sums it up in so many different ways. I mean, it's not just for medicine, it's for everything you do. If you're going a bike trip to France, if you don't prepare for it, you're going to have a good time, you know? So yeah. I think it sums it up in, in six or seven words there. Okay, we, we, we've sadly come to the point where we have to uh, end our conversation it's been wonderful to share your recollections of your time at UCD uh, as an undergraduate and a postgraduate, uh, not to mention your subsequent accomplishments in cardiology. Uh, I say it again, there you've made major contributions at the highest level, both nationally and internationally, in your pioneering work in heart failure. I hope you won't feel too old when I say that you're recognized as the founding father of the specialty of uh, heart failure in Ireland. So I'm sure uh, my fellow MGA alumni would be united in uh, thanking you for your contribution today. And uh, it's been a pleasure talking with you, Ken. Thank you. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you. Thank you.